we made the little change in our order today because what I plan to speak on for the Lord's Supper became big enough to be a sermon. So that's what I'm doing today. Rather than getting like two and a half sermons, you'll, you'll get one shorter sermon um, <clears throat> this way. But hopefully it will be a benef- beneficial to you, great benefit to you, I hope. We're going to be focusing our attention, of course, on the Lord's Supper and remembering, remembering Jesus. That's going to be the focus today. And as always, I I feel a a great need to pray before I begin, so let's do that. Holy Father, um, I come to you and ask you on behalf of all of us here today that you would continue to work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We've just praised you for the many ways in which uh, the Holy Spirit brings so many of your blessings to us, that we are indwelt by your Holy Spirit as believers, that your Holy Spirit has enabled us to believe and to repent and to know you. He has given us new life. And uh, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and with understanding now as we look into your word and help us, Lord, I pray, in our hearts to to remember Jesus as we should, I pray. And help me as I, as I endeavor to uh, teach this morning, help, me, help my mind to be clear and my memory to work well, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll recall that when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper, he specifically instructed that it, that it be a means by which we remember him. And we often think of and this is something I've taken to doing once uh, I had cancer and I'm uncertain of what my future is going to be. Um, I've been saying things to Kim and sounding kind of morbid, and so I'm trying not to sound so morbid now. Like, I want you to remember how much I love you. I want you to remember. Uh, and uh, I, I think when you think about death being possibly soon in your life, you start to think that way. And Jesus was facing imminent death. I'm not. Even if cancer returns, I'll be here for a while anyway. But Jesus was, Jesus was uh, expecting imminent death. And what did he say? He said, remember me. But in a very special way, he wanted them to remember him. Um, because he wasn't just a human being. He was the son of God who was giving his life for them in the coming hours. And he was looking ahead to that and saying, I want you to remember how I'm dying for you and why. I don't want you to just look back on my life and remember me like most people. Like I want my wife to remember me and how much I love her, right? He wants, he wants them to look back at what he's about to do and hasn't yet done after it happens and remember that, right? Paul describes this teaching that he passed on. And uh, so I'll read his statement of it in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 23 through 26, where he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, and you'll hear this again later, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. He stressed that, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, Paul says, the Lord's death till he comes. So Paul's indicating there that one of the things we're remembering is the gospel as well. And so the teaching today uh, is about focusing our attention upon the meaning of what Jesus said there. What, what did he mean when he said, remember me? And he stressed his broken body and his blood that was shed. He stressed his atoning death. And remembering his atoning death as a key to remembering him correctly, right? But is that all he wanted us to remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Just that he died for us. Would the apostles only have remembered that about Jesus when they remembered him, do you think? Or would their minds have been flooded with countless other memories that informed just who it was that died for them on the cross. It wasn't just anyone who died for them on the cross. It was Jesus, the Son of God, who died for, for them on the cross, who was born of the Virgin Mary. They knew this. Who lived a sinless life. They knew this. They'd been with him. They'd seen him. They saw the miracles that he worked. They heard him speak truth from God as the great prophet that was to come, like Moses. So, surely, when they remembered him, they wouldn't have just remembered that he died for them, but they, they would remember who it was that died for them. Because two other people died on a cross that day, right? It didn't make, make any difference at all. What made a difference was who Jesus was when he died on that cross, who he is. And so, I want us to try to remember Jesus like that as we approach the Lord's Supper today. I want us to remember, yes, that he died on the cross for our sins and how central that is. We can't be saved unless he died on the cross for our sins. But that would be meaningless if he weren't who he was when he died on the cross for our sins, right? Only he could have died on the cross for our sins. So that means that if we're going to properly remember his saving death, we're going to have to remember his saving life as well. And so we're going to look at those two things today. We're going to take some time to think of the saving life of Christ because we often think of what he did to save us as being through his death and resurrection. But the scriptures make it very clear that unless he was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, he couldn't have died for us. Everything he did in his life was to save us. Every way in which he perfectly followed God's will and kept all the commandments was in our, on our behalf, in our place. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He kept the law. He had to do that to save us. Right? So when we think of Jesus as the one who died on the cross for our sins to save us, we have to remember who he was and what he did up to that point as absolutely essential to that same saving work on the cross. So that's, that's how we're going to remember him today. Again, we're going to start with the saving life of Christ. And we're going to consider his saving life under three headings. First, his incarnation, and then his obedience, and then his suffering. 
And there's a lot of ways we could go about looking at, at the saving life of Christ, but I think these are as good as any, right? And of course, you're going to start with the incarnation because that's where it all begins. And so, first of all, the incarnation. Now, the term incarnation, I think that comes from the Latin. It, it, it literally refers to enfleshment, right? Um, it, it refers to God the Son coming in a human body and taking on human flesh. That's what it's about. Um, in, in also taking up a human nature. It, it, so it often refers to the doctrine of the two natures in, in Christ um, that we don't have time to explore fully here, but we'll summarize it the way they did in the Chalcedonian Creed. This is my way of summarizing it. Jesus was fully God and fully man in such a way that his deity neither added to nor subtracted from his humanity. Otherwise, he wouldn't be fully man, right? And he was fully man in such a way that his humanity neither added to or detracted from his deity, or he wouldn't be fully God, right? That's the way the church father said, we've got to put it this way. That's the biblical way to say it and avoid heresy, right? And so when I'm speaking of the incarnation of Christ and him coming, becoming man, God becoming man, that's what I mean. Those two natures of Christ in one person. I wish we could get into a lot of teaching about that today. That I have to wait for another day, and most of you are quite firmly grounded there anyhow. Now, the incarnation is clearly taught in a number of passages. For example, in his lengthy prologue to his gospel, the Apostle John begins in John 1, 1 through 3, by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, the word there, in the context, he makes it clear he's talking about Jesus Christ, and he's calling him the word because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, right? And uh, later on in verse 14, he says this, and this word who created everything, right, who is God, he's already identified the word as God. That's Jesus is God, he's saying, quite clearly in the beginning. Now he says, the word who is God, who is with God, who created everything, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God became man. This is what he's saying. Took on humanity. The Apostle Paul also stressed the incarnation, and he reminds us that the purpose of the Incarnation is that we might be saved. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when he says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, he's presupposing the Son already existed and was sent to be born, right? Uh, well, we know already that he existed as God and was sent to be born of a woman whom we know to be the Virgin Mary and born under the law. Now, that, that means that he had to obey the law like everyone else. That's what it means to say that he was born under the law. And then he says, why? To redeem those who are under the law. Why was he born under the law? Why did he, why did he have to fulfill the law? In order to redeem us who are under the law of God, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the one who is son, God's son by nature right, enables us to be God's sons by adoption through the redemption that he provides because as the one who was born under the law, he perfectly kept it, right? Uh, 
No wonder Paul elsewhere made it clear that the incarnation is a crucial part of the gospel and a, and a proper understanding of the gospel. We, we studied this back when we studied 1 Timothy uh, 3.16, where Paul says, and, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Talking about Christ. Talking about the incarnation. If, if God wasn't manifest in the flesh, nothing else matters, right? We can't be saved. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The author of Hebrews also stressed the incarnation and how absolutely crucial it is to our salvation. Uh, for example, he said this in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren. This was necessary that he take on our humanity. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And of course, he's presupposing that we know that he did that through his death on the cross. His sacrifice. The propitiation is a wrath-ending sacrifice. It turns away God's wrath toward us for, because of our sin. And he says, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so not only did, according to this text, he have to become a human being, he have to take on flesh, he have to, the incarnation was absolutely essential in order for him to be the sacrifice for our sins, but also it makes him the one who is able to understand our struggles with temptation and for us to know that. The important thing is that this is how we know it, right? That he can do this. Um, actually, it goes on to say in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, speaking there of the ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was sinless. That's how he can be our perfect sacrifice. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All these texts and others tell us why it's so important that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that the incarnation occurred, that he took on our humanity. And I think what Wayne Grudem wrote about the necessity of the atoning death of Christ is equally true regarding the necessity of the incarnation. He writes this, Was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? Before answering this question, it's important to realize that it was not necessary for God to save any people at all. When we appreciate that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, as we're told in 2 Peter 2.4, then we realize that God could also have chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment. 
He could have chosen to save no one, just as he did with the sinful angels. So in this sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary. But once God, in his love, decided to save some human beings, then several passages of scripture indicate that there was no other way for God to do this than through the death of his son. Therefore, the atonement was not absolutely necessary, but as a consequence of God's decision to save some human beings, the atonement was absolutely necessary. And this is sometimes, he says, called the consequent absolute necessity view of the atonement. There's a mouthful for you. But he's on to something, I think. But here's the thing. If the atonement is absolutely essential for us to be saved, and that, that atonement required the Son of God then to become man in order to save us. Because as we've seen, it's not any old atonement will do. So we can say that the incarnation was the beginning of Christ's saving work that was necessary in order to save us. It was absolutely essential. But we can't be saved. And, and of course, we saw that how clearly that was stated also by the author of Hebrews. He had to be made like us for us to be saved. So let's move on now then to having become incarnate. We've already alluded to some of this in these texts, the obedience of Christ. Because once he became man and once he was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, he had to then sinlessly live before God. He had to keep the law perfectly. Our Lord Jesus stressed how essential his obedience was when he went to be baptized by John the Baptist, for example. Uh, remember, John objected. He said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. I mean, this is, this is backwards. I don't feel right about this, you know. And Jesus reminded him why it was so important that John baptize him and that he himself undergo baptism. He said this in Matthew 3.15. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John went ahead and baptized him. Now what did he mean by that? Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. How was he fulfilling all righteousness by being baptized by John? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus hadn't sinned. What was he repenting of? This is why John felt he didn't need to be baptized. John's like, I'm the sinner. I'm the one that needs baptism, not, not you. Why did Jesus say, but we have to do it to fulfill all righteousness? Well, think, if you think about it, 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 I think it makes sense this way. John the Baptist was calling people, all the people of Israel, to repent and to be baptized. Now, even if you didn't need to repent, apparently Jesus felt in order to obey what a prophet of God was calling God's people to do, you still had to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, in order to perfectly live out righteously what God demands. That's what I think he meant, anyway. He's just not saying, no, I need to repent too. What he is saying is, if I'm going to be the one who's fully righteous and needs no repentance, I must do this as well. I think that's how he meant it. 
Jesus also spoke quite clearly about his own obedience to the Father and how it actually included his saving work on our behalf. That it was through obedience to the Father. Now, he also says he laid down his life of his own will. No one took it from him, right? He, that he willingly did this. But he also was following the Father's will and he was obeying. He says this, for example, in John 6, 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And he's talking, at least to some people, who he, whom he has identified as having been given to him by the Father, versus others. For example, his disciples. And he's assuring them that he's, he is going to raise them up on the last day. As the one who has come to earth for this purpose. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The Apostle Paul also stressed how crucial the obedience of Jesus was for our salvation. As several of his texts make clear, I'll just read three verses, beginning uh, with Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, they're speaking of Adam, he says, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. They're, they're, they're speaking of the second or last Adam, Jesus. We're made righteous, How? Well, ultimately through the obedience of Christ. And that includes his death on the cross, but not only that. It's, in, it's implying perfect obedience throughout his life. The saving life of Christ, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, we're told by Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became for us from God, or uh, excuse me, who became for us wisdom from God. And then he says, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We've, we've gotten a hint already. How did he become righteousness for us? He was, he was righteous. He didn't become righteous. He became righteousness for us. How? His own righteousness becomes our own. That's how. Remember, Paul teaches in the doctrine of justification that the righteousness of God becomes our own and is credited to us, reckoned to us. And on that basis, we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's what justification is. And that's what Paul has in mind here when he says that Jesus became righteousness for us. That means he had to be righteous. He brings us the righteousness of God. It has to be his own righteousness must also be that, right? Philippians 2.8 says, Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The obedience of Christ. His saving obedience. Saving life. Robert Raymond aptly observes in his systematic theology, that it is necessary first to note that un undergirding all the rich and variegated terminology 
that the scriptures employ to describe Christ's cross work, there's one comprehensive, all-embracive, unifying feature of his entire life and ministry, which is so essential to his cross work, that without it, none of the things that the scriptures say about it could have been said with any degree of propriety. That feature is the obedience of Christ. Quite correctly did John Calvin write, quote, Now someone asks, how has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this we can in general reply that he has achieved this for us by the whole course of his obedience. That is a good way of putting it. By the whole course of his obedience. When our Lord Jesus obeyed Joseph and Mary when he was two and ten and twelve, he was saving us. Every righteous thing in his life was done to save us throughout his life. If he had sinned even once, we couldn't be saved. This is who we're remembering when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We've talked a little bit about his saving life, looking at the incarnation in his obedience. Thirdly, we'll, we'll Think of it in terms of his suffering, which, which happened throughout his life and not just on the cross. Um, but we see it most profoundly on the cross where God's wrath was poured out on him for our sins. The author of Hebrews spoke quite directly about the necessity of suffering the life of our Lord Jesus as well as his incarnation when he said this, for example, in Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting, you could read necessary for him, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. How was he made perfect to be our perfect high priest, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to be our perfect savior? How is he made perfect? Through sufferings. through sufferings. Later in the book, the author of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 5, 8, Hebrews 5, 8, that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Nowhere does the Bible assume obedience is an easy thing. In fact, obedience often involves suffering especially in a fallen world. It's hard to obey God. We see that in the culture in which we live. It's hard to really obey God without some measure of suffering in your life. Same was true for Jesus. He took on the same kind of suffering that full obedience to God requires. In fact, he did it perfectly, unlike us. And so we see that Jesus could not have died as a sinless sacrifice for our sins had he not first been born without sin and had lived without sin even in the midst of every kind of temptation and suffering that we endure. And this leads us to our, our next main point, which is 
a shorter one. And that's about the saving death of Christ. And here I'm just going to read four passages. Because everything we've read up to now is what makes it possible for him to die to save us, right? For that, to, that plan to come to fruition. For example, I'll start with an Old Testament text, Isaiah 53. Start reading verse 5 and 6. We're told in a prophecy about Jesus that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. That's a way of saying he was punished for us, not for what he did. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on to say in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's speaking of our Lord Jesus. He bore our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, in the 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's what Martin Luther called the happy exchange. Happy for us. Joyful for us. He took our sin on himself on the cross that we might have his righteousness reckoned to us. Our sin was reckoned to him. His righteousness gets reckoned to us. That's the exchange. He didn't deserve to be treated like a sinner. and We don't deserve to be treated like we're righteous. It's grace. It's all grace. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19, 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. See how stinging he means that to be, right? but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and blemish. He was a perfect sacrifice. He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How John the Baptist referred to him, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had to be perfect to do that. And that's what Peter's highlighting. Later in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, we read this. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. He's saying, what are the steps we're supposed to follow Jesus in? The steps of suffering is what he's talking about here. If he suffered, we can expect to suffer. 
And then he says this, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. They're quoting the Old Testament. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And he's got the prophecies in Isaiah 52 and 53 in mind there. So, as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's my earnest desire that we, we remember Jesus the way I think he wants us to remember him when he says, when you partake of this bread and partake of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. I think when he says, in remembrance of me, we have to stop and say, well, who was he? He's not just saying in remembrance of one thing I did that's absolutely crucial for your salvation and is the central part of what you're celebrating, to be sure. But when you're doing it in remembrance of me, you're remembering a lot more than just that. You're remembering why I could do that for you, why I had to do that for you, why only I could have done that for you. I think that's the kind of thing we should think about when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And of course, he also implies that uh, as our risen Savior, we remember that he's still alive. He rose from the dead. The one we're remembering is actually still alive. <laughs> We remember that too. Because he conquered death and he rose from the dead. And we remember him. This is all the stuff we remember. When he died on the cross for our sins, that's who we're talking about. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. What a Savior.